Amen. Well, good morning. So if I can do this without throwing everything off of it. Ooh, I should be a magician. All right. Well, good morning. Uh, can we start that timer, please? If you have not met me, if there's some of you that are parents here, uh, my name is Jeff Luddington. I'm a lead pastor, and it is really good to be here with you this morning. We're going to be in Mark 14, so if you're in Mark 12 now for the reading, just kind of scroll or turn a page or whatever that might be. Uh, but we're going to pick up there. We're in a series asking the question, what is the gospel? So we took the gospel of Mark, we broke it in, into two parts, asking two questions. Who is Jesus and what is the gospel? So we looked at Jesus, the teacher, the, the healer, Jesus, the prophet, Jesus, the son of God. We looked at these facets of who Jesus is, and now it's the final week of Jesus' life, and we're zooming in on the message that he's been pointing to throughout his ministry. So Jesus spends three years in vocational ministry, primarily teaching. The other things that he does validate who he is, when he will heal and he will gather a crowd, he will teach them about the kingdom, teach them about the gospel. And so we pivot right there at the final week of Jesus' life to asking questions about what is the gospel. If you are with us online today, I'm going to apologize up front, no video today. So we're running an audio and we will post a video after service. If you're here, disregard all that, all right? So here's a main idea for you today. The gospel is Christ's sacrifice, and we'll put this up. Jesus teaches through the Passover meal that, his, that he is the sacrifice, giving us life and removing our sin. Communion is the sacrament that reminds us of this. So each Sunday when we do communion, we don't always talk about it leading into it, or maybe just for a few minutes right before it, but it's steeped in this tradition of Passover. It's during Passover that Jesus first takes the bread and the cup, giving it to his disciples, explaining it in deeper meaning, and then saying, do this in remembrance of me. And what he's doing is he is proclaiming again his death that is imminent. And so we're in that final week of Jesus' life. We saw him as he had that grand entrance into Jerusalem where some wanted to make him a conquering king, and others were hailing him, and he's telling them, listen, I go here to die, like I'm headed to the cross but I will raise from the dead in three days. You can imagine the confusion of the disciples and those hearing him because that's not a message easily understood, especially if it's never happened. So Jesus proclaiming this as he works his way towards his final hours before the cross. And so that's where we pick up our story. It's Mark 14, verse 1. It says, And it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And so Jesus is sitting or is heading towards a meal. Now, Passover is this eight day long feast and celebration has different movements to it. One of them is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And, and that is important to our conversation today. So we'll put this up. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Well, Passover is eight days long, celebrates the death passing over Israel. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a celebration about the removal of sin from the people. If you've been around the church or you've kind of studied Old Testament or, or whatever a little bit, you know about the leaven and, and Jewish families would hide, and they still do to this day when they celebrate Passover, they'll hide a little bit of leaven inside their house. And it's kind of a game to get the kids to go find the leaven and the removal of the leaven from the home. 
And it's very symbolic about the removal of sin. And so unleavened bread is this unrised bread that they would do crackers or tortillas is kind of how I think of it, right? That flattened bread. And it's this remembrance of the removal of sin. And then Passover, of course, is that celebration of death in Egypt, the final plague, the thing that liberates Israel from slavery is when God strikes the firstborn in every household that didn't have blood painted on their doors, the blood of a lamb, and all died, the firstborn of cattle, the firstborn of a home, the firstborns of servants' homes, or even all the way up to Pharaoh's firstborn son. For those who followed what God said and killed a lamb and painted their doors, for them, death passed over them. And so in that, the term Passover was reminding them that death passes over. And so they would celebrate this annually. And one of the things that we see in the Old Testament is sometimes the people would get away from this celebration. And then they would remember, hey, God gave us this to remind us. We spent all of last year kind of doing a summary or a survey of the Old Testament. And in reading through it really quickly, just spending a few months reading through it, the number one thing that is retold throughout Scripture, the number one event, is the exodus from Egypt. And that, that they were once slaves, and then God delivered them, and cared for them, and led them into their place. But that deliverance from slavery is the number one thing sung about in the Psalms. Proclaimed, and remember this, the prophets would tell them, so that you know that what God says in the future is also true. It's like me sharing my story with you, telling you from where God has brought me to where we are today. It's like you and your story. And so this is that moment. We celebrate Christmas and Easter, and they're very, very commercialized today. But this is purely a religious tradition in Passover, remembering when death passes over and these little parts that go through it, like the Feast of Unleavened Bread, teaching them about the removal of sin. So verse 3, and while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Simon the leper clearly doesn't have leprosy anymore or nobody be in his house, right? So Simon has been healed by Jesus, but he was known as Simon the leper to keep us focused on who he was. He's become one of the larger group of disciples, right? We know there's the 12 that go on to be apostles minus Judas, right? We're going to talk about that a little bit today. We know there was a larger group that traveled around. There's hundreds of people that would have considered themselves disciples of Jesus, Simon being one of those. Simon being a legitimate follower of Jesus that just didn't travel around with him as he moved around. And then there's a woman, this gospel doesn't name her, John's gospel names her as Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who Jesus had raised from the dead. These were friends of Jesus. When we think of Jesus, who is God, sometimes we forget Jesus, who is human. That he went to weddings and parties, and he had friends, and when Lazarus died, he even, he even wept. And so here's Mary nearing the end of Jesus' life, his life on earth. And what she does here, and we'll see it in a minute as it says it, she anoints him for burial. Now imagine that while he's alive. That doesn't happen. Right? And so there's this, what is she doing? What does she understand? Maybe that others don't. And it's kind of that same conflict, like when we saw the entrance into Jerusalem. 
Some are championing Jesus as a military hero, a conquering king, someone who's going to come in and get rid of Rome and, and make them their nation and control again. And others are hearing him say, I'm going to die, but I'm going to come back to life. And some are thinking he's the fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament. And, and some of all those things is true, but not in the way they understood it. And in the same way, people in this room don't always get it. But there's glimpses of people like Mary who have been listening and may not have it all together, but understands that Jesus is going to his death. Verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, that's about a year's wages, and given to the poor. And they scolded her. So there's this expensive ointment in even an expensive jar. Oh, well, this could have been done this way. But honestly, the people saying that are just the haters, right? They're going to say whatever they're going to say no matter what, right? They're not really in it and thinking about being frugal and better ways to spend ministry dollars, right? They're just critiquing Jesus. They're just the ones that whatever you do, they don't like it anyhow, right? You would never be those people I know, right? Until you change from pews to chairs or move the pipe organ three inches or whatever, right? So, you know, you've heard stories. So, <laughs> evidently, I'm not going to look, but evidently that resonates somewhere over here. All right, cool. So, they're just critical of Jesus. They're just pushing back. These are the ones that have wanted to kill him all along. And so here's their moment in they just take to say something. Verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. Right? Leave her alone. Like, she actually gets it. You're the one off track. Right? Leave her alone. She's done something beautiful. Verse 7. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. So real quick, what this is saying and what this is not saying. Right? There are some I've heard in Christianity throughout the years that will use this verse like, we don't need to care for the poor because we're always going to have the poor. And yes, that might be factually true. It's not like we're going to eradicate poverty somehow, right? There's always going to be struggles in the world. There's always going to be injustices. We can't eliminate that from a fallen, broken, sinful world, right? We don't have that kind of ability or control. Jesus is just stating that. You're always going to have the poor. You're always going to have the marginalized. There will always be struggles, whether it be injustice or bias or whatever. There will always, in fact, in another place, Jesus says, there will always be wars and tribulations, and we're hearing about these things. Just a side note, Christianity, right? What I see online is this constant politicization, politic, po making things political. <laughs> it's a good thing I don't speak for a living, right? So there's this propensity from Christians right now to make something political. Somehow Trump and Biden are both to blame for everything always, right? Depending upon who you are. This is not that moment for us. This is the moment to pray. Because people at war are in a political position. They're people. People being bombed are people. And the people doing it are people. Under someone, we can critique that. 
But there's always going to be wars. There's always going to be tribulations. Notice it's pluralized. There's always going to be struggle. Jesus is just noting that until he returns to fix everything, there will always be that. Her devotion to him and her understanding of him is greater than the idea that we could take a year's wages, whatever that dollar amount means to you, and give it somehow to the poor. A good thing, but not an ultimate thing. So I'll put it to you this way. The social gospel versus the gospel of Jesus. Seeking to meet the needs of the marginalized or care for the planet has its place, but it can't be more important than the eternal salvation of lost people. Jesus prioritizes eternity and people over temporal things, even people, even the planet. And our, our creation mandate is to care for the planet God created for us. Another creation mandate, care for people that God gives us, right? Jesus even said, that's easy to tell you what's the most important thing, love God and love one another, love your neighbor, right? So love people but love them also with eternity in view. So I've heard people take this and, and say, oh, we don't need to care for the homeless or care for the poor. Well, that's not what it's saying. It's not saying don't care. It's just say, understand that eternal things override temporal things when you must make a choice. Otherwise, of course, do both. Verse eight says, she has done what she could She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. So again, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Jesus says outright what she's doing. She is preparing him for death. Now, why would she be doing that? Because he repeatedly says he's going to die. He's been telling them, and as hard as that is for them to understand, she picked up on it, right? Sometimes we figure it out, it kind of clicks into gear, and we're like, oh, I understand. Sometimes we completely miss it. And to be fair, put yourself in their shoes, hard message to get. Hard thing to hear if I was going to tell you, hey, listen, I'm going to die. I'll be dead for three days, but don't worry, I'm coming back. You'd think we should have never legalized drugs, right? I mean, that's what you would think. Put yourself in their shoes. The gospel message isn't one easy to understand. We struggle with it, and we have the whole story. But she gets it. She understands Jesus is going to give his life for us. It's his self-sacrifice for us. Somehow, some ways, trading himself for us. You see, the gospel message is that. It's that because of sin, because you and I have chosen to go our own way, that we've broken that relationship with God who created us and loves us, desires us, but also designed us to be worshipers of his, when I say worshipers, that our lives would bring glory to God. Doesn't mean just what we do when we play bells or sing songs or whatever, those are part of it. Our lives are designed to bring glory to God. You and I spend all our lives trying to bring glory to ourselves oftentimes, right? Taking God off the throne, jumping up there and trying to run our life. That's sin. That's just the easiest way to think of sin. It's doing our way, not God's way. So God could have left us to that schism in our relationship with him, right? And that sin and infidelity against God, he could have left us to that. That's what we would deserve. But instead, in love and grace and mercy and benevolence, God sends his son to come and trade himself for us. 
important to the story is that Jesus willingly trades himself, trades himself, his life for us. Again, valuing the eternal over the temporary. He's going to trade temporary, as bad as it may be, temporary suffering, temporary, even for him, temporary death, because the eternal weight is more valuable. Again, being consistent with his message. What really matters is forever. What also may matter is now. But when you put the two against each other, forever trumps it every time. And Mark 9 says, Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. We read that passage two weeks ago. Jesus has been saying this all along. The gospel message is that Jesus' death pays the penalty for our sin, that his resurrection gives us new life, that in in Christ we're not just forgiven versions of our broken self, but we're really empowered to live new lives, that his resurrection gives us new life, that he ascends back to heaven, he pours out his spirit in us, the spirit of Jesus in us. That is the promise of baptism, right? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. He says, promises for you and for your children and for generations after you. Like, that is the promise of baptism, that we receive the Spirit of Jesus to live in us, to guide us, to lead us, to convict us, to encourage us, to whatever we need, but to empower us to be different. The gospel gives new life. Verse 9 And truly I say to you, Jesus says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And here we are reading about her. See, we all want to do something that kind of leaves an indelible mark on the world. So maybe we try and build buildings or, you know, hand off good kids to the next generation, whatever we try and do. Plant churches, pastor churches, whatever we, we might try and do to leave our mark on the world. Notice the one Jesus says, you'll be telling her story forever, till I return, is the one who just understands him right, serves him, granted, sacrificially. But she didn't create a company that we're talking about. She anointed Jesus for his burial. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priest to order, in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money And he sought an opportunity to betray him, meaning Jesus. Verse 12, and on the first day of the unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Right, so here's the symbolism, death passing over and the removal of sin. This particular meal, Feast of Unleavened Bread, is about the removal of sin. The entire eight-day celebration is about death passing over. So you can see this in the gospel, that those who are in Christ, that eternal death passes over them, right? And then he goes to the cross to remove our sin, that if we're in Christ, our sin is removed from us. I love the Old Testament version of saying, it is taken from you, it's removed as far as the east is from the west. Not in a globe where they hit, but forever, that Jesus removes our sins. So as Jesus prepares for this meal, as his disciples are knowing, hey, this is coming, we're Jewish, we do this, we know how valuable this is, Jesus, where do you want us to prepare that? 
So as they look at this, I just want to remember all the way back. As they're leaning into Passover, I want to go all the way back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I want you to remember John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus, his kind of cousin-ish, right? Distant cousin of his, who is proclaiming. He's the first prophet to speak in 400 years. God has gone silent for 400 years, and his promise was, when the Messiah comes, when the Savior comes, when my promise comes, there will be a prophet again who will lead the way. That's John the Baptist. And he says these words in John chapter 1. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All the way back. This is three years before this moment with the disciples right now. This is John, the prophet of God, pointing to Jesus and saying, Listen, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is ripe with meaning. It, it, it's, it's something we read and maybe we understand, but it is deep with meaning if you're Jewish. The Lamb of God, they immediately went to Passover. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who Jesus is. And as he goes to this, even from the prophet John speaking about him, the idea is he will die He's the Lamb of God. Passover was that moment where they would slaughter the lamb in the doorway. And they would take the blood of that lamb and they would paint the side posts of the doors and then the header above. And you can kind of see this top and bottom where they slaughtered the lamb and the sides. You can see this kind of image of a cross. That Passover has always pointed forward to Jesus. That yes, it was about delivering people from slavery. Yes, it was about something temporary. As bad as slavery is, it wasn't all about that. It was about something much greater. It's about our slavery to sin. That Jesus would come and, and, and deliver us from the very thing that binds us and keeps us has been foretold long ago since Passover in Egypt. That image has been with them all along. And so that meal is coming. This significant moment is coming. And they don't know it's about Jesus, but his disciples say, listen, we know Passover is coming. Where, where do you want to sit down and celebrate this great religious tradition and meal that we do every year? And we see four Passovers that Jesus celebrates in the Gospels. Over those three years in ministry, he begins right at Passover. He ends right at Passover. So his disciples ask this question. Verse 13, and he sent to his disciples, and he said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there, prepare for us. And the disciples set out, and they went to the city, and they found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Remember, it was last week, right, as Jesus entering in, and Jesus says, go into the town, you're going to find a guy with a colt tied up. Take the colt. When he asks you a question, tell him, this is for our master. And again, he sends them ahead, just again, revealing who Jesus is. Yes, he will die. Yes, he is human. He's also God. And says, here, go do this. When they ask you a question, here's what you tell them. Just follow this guy into the house. That's weird. Just follow him in. When they ask you a question, just say, hey, my master has need of a room. They're like, oh, we've already got it up here. Here you go. Jesus living in both his real divinity and his real humanity in this moment. Verse 17, and when it was evening, he came with the 12. So they sit down. 
And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Can you imagine how that landed in that room? Right? Tomorrow morning we'll have a staff meeting and sit down. It's like, so one of you is going to betray me. Feel a little Godfather moment. Thank you, Alex. You get to work here another week. Good. So, right? Like the untouchables, right? They're sitting at the table before he beats his head with a bat. It's that moment, right? Minus the bat, and Jesus is much better than that. But you're going to betray me. Can you just imagine being in the disciples inside their heads for a minute, right? Now, one of them knows what he's talking about, knows what Jesus is talking about. But the others begin to question themselves. In verse 19, it says, they begin to be sorrowful and say to him one after the other, is it I? Like, you talking about me? Like, I hope it's not me, right? I think I'm on track. I don't get this whole death thing, but I think I'm with you, right? They begin to even question themselves. Verse 20, he said to them, it's one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. And Jesus points out Judas, Right? You can imagine that moment's going by, and the other 11 are asking questions themselves, and Judas knows it's him, and he's eating. He goes to dip some. He's like, oops, right? Like, he's the one, right? Sorry. But you might be thinking, okay, so Jesus knows what's going on. Like, he even knows who's going to betray him. Like, why did he choose him? Why doesn't he just do something, right? It's because Jesus chooses to do this for us. He chooses to give his life for you, for me, for his disciples. We'll put this up. So Jesus and Judas. Jesus clearly knows what Judas is doing to betray him. But this is part of, forgive my typos, what we are to see. Jesus lays down his life willingly as a sacrifice for sin and death. Jesus willingly goes to the cross. He allows Judas. He chooses Judas. He knows what's up. He chooses this moment. He chooses to go to the cross. He willingly gives his life for you, for me. He willingly dies. Now, how Jesus, who is the author and creator of life, can die will always baffle me. And yet he gives his life for us. Verse 21, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. Woe to that man. It would be better if he wasn't born. So when we talk about the worst person in all of human history, who do we always talk about? Hitler. Easy one. There's a few others, right? We always default to that. Now, go and, and who you... Don't be either one. Who do you want to be standing before God? That guy or the guy who betrayed God's Son, Right? And that's what Jesus is saying, like, woe to him who does this. It would have been better if he had never been born. Like, he ranks in, in one of the like, biggest epic mistakes ever, or biggest willingly choosing to do something wrong ever as he betrays Jesus. Verse 22, and as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. For the first hundred years of the church, if not longer, communion has always been a part of a meal. At Generations, we spent the last four months of last year 
uh, this kind of the, the core families and people that could be here. Uh, we studied the book of Acts. We didn't really study the book of Acts. We studied the first century church in the book of Acts. And we noticed how they did communion during a full meal. That's not how we do it, and we're going to do a communion today. We do communion each Sunday here. It's not how we do it at a meal, but that's how they were doing it. And it's just kind of a, a holdover from Passover, and I imagine throughout church history, it just got to be bigger and, and kind of whittled down to the piece that was important about what Jesus commanded for us to do. I think there's probably something lost in that, that we're not sharing a meal together. But as our tradition goes, we, we celebrate communion. We believe it's a means of grace in the Reformed tradition. We believe that communion is a means of grace. In other words, it's something that literally strengthens us, that we are stronger for doing. Like food, I always say, like food nourishes our body. Communion nourishes our spirit. It's a means of grace, a way God shows grace to you and to me. And though the host, the cup or the bread doesn't change, that they're just really a cup and a bread, they are symbolic, it's also a means of grace. It's something kind of where heaven and earth kind of combine, where they meet us in that moment. And so it's at the Passover meal, rich and deep with meaning of death passing over, the greatest of all the celebrations in Judaism, the thing that they sit down to do, and there's several courses and parts to this, like the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where they hide the leaven, they talk about the removal of sin from their community. It's at that meal that Jesus sits with his disciples, and as he breaks the bread, the unleavened bread, he blesses it and he hands it to them. He says, take, this is my body. In some places we get, this is my body broken for you. It's like Jesus saying, listen, I'm going to endure brokenness in my body so that you can be made whole. See, before the cross, Jesus will be scourged and beaten beyond recognition. His body will be broken. But it's not just the way they did things. He is giving himself to this. That Jesus is giving himself to be broken for us in this moment. That he will suffer so that eternally we can have life. But even temporally we can have life here. That his body broken that we might be made whole. And so he breaks the bread. He gives it to him. Luke accounts it this way. He says he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In reality, they're breaking bread. But he is foreshadowing, not foreshadowing, telling. He's not hinting. He's telling them. He will move forward and be broken. They will know. They will see. In this moment, they're hearing it. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 23, and he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they drank of it. This is deep with symbolism of that Passover lamb, the cup, the blood of that lamb, that image of those four points of blood on that door. Kind of for us, painting a picture of the cross. Matthew says like this, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, in reality, they have a cup, 
that they're sharing and passing and he's holding and he's showing them. He said, this is a covenant. That's our strongest word in scripture for a promise, an unchangeable, unbreakable promise from God to us. This is a covenant in my blood. You can't make a stronger statement by Jesus than that. That this is a contract, a guarantee, a promise in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Take of it, all of you. And his disciples, imagine again in that moment, imagine, imagine you're the first guy he hands it to. Like, what am I, what did he just say? What are we doing in this moment right now? What does he mean? Again, you got to go back before he goes to the cross and goes to the grave and just put yourself in that confused moment and participating in that with Jesus. He explains it really clearly to us who have the whole story. But to them in that moment, this has got to be the heaviest, quietest moment at that table. Verse 25, and he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Notice for many, not for all. Jesus didn't die for everybody, he died for those will place their lives in him. He's not forgiving the sins of the atheist down the street who doesn't want anything to do with him, although it's available to him. He is securing your salvation, their salvation. It's for many. But it's not, well, Jesus died so everybody can just go to heaven. Everybody can, but not everybody will. In our lives, we have to ask that question, are we really in Christ? Are we just playing church? Are we just showing up and going through the moment? When we come forward or today, we're actually going to go backward because of the way we are set up today. When we take communion today, are we just going through the motions because that's what we do each Sunday? Or are we stopping and saying, this is Christ's body broken? Yes, it's just bread. We don't believe that that changes or there's any mysterious spiritual component there. That, the, that that's already been satisfied by Jesus. But this is a means of grace. This is where heaven and, and earth collide for us. And Jesus strengthens us. Or the, the cup, and he reminds us. I always think of that as the cup, he just kind of washes down my throat. It's like, you're covering my sin. Do we slow down in that moment? Do we care enough to pause and reflect? And just be in that moment. Because it's for many, but it's not for all. And you have the opportunity to make it for you. Because of what Christ has already done for you, you get to experience that. Jesus says, you do this in remembrance of me. You take the bread, you take the cup, you do this in remembrance of me. We always say this is a, a meal for the family, right? This is, this is a place where where believers do this, not non-believers. If you're not a believer today, you can go forward and take communion and ask one of our elders or their wives that are, that are serving you, hey, can you pray for me? I've never, never given my life to Jesus. They'd love to pray for you. Come see me. I'd love to talk to you. But this is for believers. That that's something we do to celebrate what Christ has done for us. So do we treat it as such? Because though Jesus says... You do this in remembrance of me. You do this. You continue this. 
And Paul will go on to write to the church in Corinth, as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. You preach the gospel over yourselves until he returns. But listen to what Jesus says. Truly, verse 25, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He says, you celebrate this, you do this. I'm going to abstain until we can do it again together. When we can sit at this gigantic table and where our meal will be in the presence of Jesus. So today, if you should choose to take communion, our elders will be in the back, their wives, I think their wives are here. Go forward and take the bread and the cup. They'll probably say something like, Christ's body broken for you, Christ's blood shed for you. And treat that moment as a moment where Jesus desires to strengthen you, where you're trusting in Jesus. And remember that he is abstaining and giving this to you kind of to hold you over until we sit at that table where we meet with Jesus face to face and the brokenness and the sin and the injustice and flaw of this world is gone, where wars have ceased and all we do is enjoy the presence of Jesus forever. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. How, how can we respond to you in any other way but deep gratitude, humble submission to you? The words, how can we ever repay you, come to mind. Your answer would just be live for me. Tell others about me, because we could never repay you, but we can live for you. So we can take this moment, and we can do it humbly, contemplatively, reflecting on the cost for you. Remembering that though salvation is free to me, free to us, it costs you everything, that there is nothing cheap about grace. Jesus, help us to appreciate this moment, even when we don't spend a whole day talking about leading into it. Help us to understand the sacrifice you gave for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.